Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Tafe about his book entitled Washington's Revolutionary War Generals. Stephen, welcome to New Books Network. Nice to be here. Well, it's nice to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I am currently a professor of history at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, but I was born and raised in Ohio. I got my bachelor's degree at Grove City College in political science and Spanish uh, back in the 80s, and then I got my master's and Ph.D. at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and I've been down here in Texas for a good 20 years or so. So you're, uh, what is it exactly that you teach? in, in, in uh, Stephen I, F. Austin? I mostly teach American history survey courses, but the upper-level classes and graduate classes, they're mostly American military history and some American foreign policy. Hmm. So what led you to write a book about uh, Washington's commanders? Well, the thing that interests me about military history is how certain generals are able to get that position in the Army or Navy or Marines, whatever I'm looking at, and I always wonder, how do these incompetent guys able to rise so high through the ranks, or how are these competent naval guys able to get so high through the ranks? And I think I got interested in that by looking at deans in academia and wondering how some <laughs> managed to get their jobs. But I study that, and I just want to know why. Why is it that these guys are the ones who become the high-ranking generals and not other guys who might be more capable? And I started by looking at Civil War generals, and I also did some work on World War II generals and Korean War generals, and then this book was on Revolutionary War generals. And I, I have some interest in the Revolutionary War, but I'm more interested in generals as a group of people. I found it to be a very fascinating book, not just because you address that question, but you also look at something else that you don't necessarily see as much of a focus on, which is how Washington interacted with these men, how basically how he employed his generals to uh, run the Continental Army and to fight the British. And I thought that was as uh, illuminating as the uh, political aspects, which are also a very important part of your story. Yeah, some of these generals, not all of them, but some of them played pretty important roles in the Revolutionary War, guys like Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan and Charles Lee, and their relationship with Washington contributed to how effective or sometimes how ineffective they were, so I was interested in that. But there are other of these guys, and there are 73 of them, who played minor roles in the war and didn't have that much contact with Washington. But but certainly the relationship that they had with Washington you can't overlook that, and I think uh, some histo- historians haven't paid enough attention to that over the years. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about the context, because it's something that it's easy to uh, miss, which is that unlike you know practically every previous war uh, that you know every war that America has fought since, you know the the country goes into this war without a military establishment. So how does that? What challenge does that present? And and how do they uh, address this challenge in terms of the officers they appoint, and 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 how did how does uh, that absence of an establishment shape their uh, decisions as to whom they choose? Uh, good question. Uh, well, of course, at the beginning of the war, each of the states had their own militias, 
and the militias were those part-timers. Generally speaking, all adult white males had to be members of the militia by law, and the idea was if there's an emergency, you call out the militia, they go off and deal with the pirates or the French or the American Indian threat or whatever, and then when it's done, they go back to their shops and farms. It's sort of like the National Guard if you had to belong to the National Guard. So all the states had militias, uh, but when the war began, Congress assumes authority over all 13 of the states, and they want to build an army to do that, uh, to fight the British. And building an army requires coming up with a leadership for it. And they understood pretty early on that they're going to need a national army, a national army of full-time professional soldiers. If If you have that kind of army, you're going to need somebody to command it. So they agreed on Washington without that much of a debate. Washington was obvious for a bunch of reasons you can talk we can talk about later uh, but also they need subordinate generals to work with Washington and that's going to cause far more difficulty because you got to figure out who you're going to get how many are you going to get what ranks are they going to have and Congress unlike today's government Congress had all the national power there wasn't a separation of power like we have today so it not only made the laws but was also responsible for implementing the laws and Congress insisted not only in having a role in selecting the generals but Congress also wanted a role in assigning the generals and a role if they're removed or in removing those generals and they got to figure out how that's going to work as they went along and as you point out it's all new although most of these generals that Congress picked had some military experience in the Great War for Empire fighting American Indians they didn't have high-level command experience and that's true almost across the board, and it, it, it causes some real problems. One of the dimensions you talk about that I thought was especially interesting was the social dimension. And it's something that, I, you know, with someone with a, a, a European history background uh, you know, might be familiar with, is that we're talking about a time where the officer corps is, is, is thought of as being predominantly, if not exclusively, aristocratic. Was there a similar dynamic taking place in terms of how people approach this notion of a high command in terms of who sh- should serve? Yeah, there, there is a social structure in the colonies. It might not it might be more egalitarian than European countries, but there still was a, a social structure there. And the guys who serve in Congress tended to come from the upper class, the aristocrats among the, the, the 13 states. And when they look to find generals, they're going to look to the same kind of people. They're going to look to guys from the upper class, guys who they know, and assign those guys. Now, this isn't to say that all the generals came from rich families. A lot of them came from rather plebeian families, but they're able to work their way into that elite as they got older and as they found their place in the world. So almost all the generals, to call them elite might be might not quite be accurate, but they're certainly from the upper echelons of, of American society. You don't have that many guys who were in 1774, 1775, poor people who just happened <laughs> to find themselves becoming generals. It didn't work that way. Another dynamic that you talk about in the book uh, uh, periodically is this notion of geographical distribution. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that as well, because I think it also points to this political dimension that you've already referenced, this notion of having uh, of of how you know Congress has to think about balancing all these various interests to what degree were, were was that a concern in terms of some of the individual appointments and can you maybe give us an example or two of where it came to play 
in a way that maybe either benefited the country or maybe actually ended up uh, being a detriment to the cause. Yeah, you have these 13 states, and they all have representatives in the Continental Congress. And, of course, Congress is selecting the generals who are going to serve under Washington. And every state wants some generals, not only for prestige purposes, but because they also want one of their own commanding their troops. If you're a New Hampshire congressman, you'd prefer to have a New Hampshire guy commanding your New Hampshire brigade. And so they all want some of their guys as generals. Now, the problem becomes how many will each state get? And at the start of the war, there's this informal consensus that really the more soldiers your state is contributing to the cause, the more generals you should probably get. And later this is codified by this thing called the Baltimore Resolution in early 1777. But it was in play even before that. And some states got more generals and other states got fewer, again, depending on how many guys they contribute. For example, Virginia pledged to contribute a lot of men to the Continental Army, so they got more generals. Same thing with Massachusetts. On the other hand, smaller states like New Hampshire and, and particularly Delaware, they can't contribute as many, so they don't get that many generals. In fact, there weren't any Continental generals from Delaware at all. Hmm. And so they try to keep this balance. And a good example of that, uh, Benedict Arnold, deserved to be promoted to a major general for his uh, actions in Canada and uh, in upstate New York, but Congress passed him over, and one reason why Congress passed him over is because Congress figured Connecticut already had enough generals. And even though by any objective standard Arnold deserved the promotion, he didn't get the promotion. And an, another example would be uh, there's a general named Enoch Poor, who nobody's ever heard of. He was in New Hampshire. A general, and he probably deserved to be promoted to a major general. He served in a lot of campaigns. He wasn't flashy, but he was reliable and dependable. But because he came from such a tiny state, Congress never really saw a reason to promote the guy to a major general. And there are a bunch of others who who are. I don't want to use the word victimized, but, <laughs> but in a way they were that they're they're punished because they didn't come from states that that deserved or. or people believe deserved a lot of generals. But on the other hand, there were some guys who were elevated who probably shouldn't have been, but they got the promotion or they got the appointment because they're from a big, important state. I was wondering if you, uh, before we continue, maybe explain a bit as to uh, the command structure and how it works. I mean, uh, what were the ranks that, that, that Congress established and uh, what determined sort of, uh, in effect, their 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 roles in 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 the army and 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 how they were employed? Well, uh, the states have their militias, and the states have their own system for how they run their militias. When it comes to the Continental Army, the National Army, the Professional Standing Army, uh, Washington was the commander in chief of the entire Continental Army. He had his own specific field army that he ran, but the idea was that he could exert general authority over the armies in the Carolinas or the army fighting in Canada, but he had his own field army. Now, usually a Revolutionary War army, uh, it started out the basic unit was a regiment, which in the Revolutionary War was usually a couple hundred men, and they're organized by the states, so, you know, they're based on the states. And then several of these regiments would make up a brigade, uh, and a brigade in the Revolutionary War would have 
oftentimes a thousand men, if it's lucky, fifteen hundred men, and then you take these brigades, and two of them made up with uh, a division, and the division might have twenty five hundred men. So um, uh, Washington's army would usually contain three or four of these divisions, each one divided into a couple brigades, and a division was usually commanded by a major general. And in the Revolutionary War, out of the 73 generals, I think something like 40 or 30 became major generals. And then these brigades that contained, again, about 1,000 men, they're led by brigadier generals. Now, one of the problems Washington had is he usually didn't have enough generals to fill all these brigades and divisions. So oftentimes a brigade would be led by a colonel who ordinarily would command a regiment, but he's put in charge of this brigade because there's nobody else available. And Washington never liked that. He didn't think those guys were as effective as having a, a legitimate brigadier general running the brigade because these colonels have to look after their own regiment and look after the brigade. But So those are the only two ranks. Uh, Washington... I guess he'd be considered a lieutenant general today, but it wasn't an actual rank. So there were no lieutenant generals or full generals or generals of the army, except, again, if you want to consider Washington one of them. The only general ranks you had were major generals and brigadier generals, and that's going to hold true in the American military, really, up till the Civil War. And were there any generals who did not have uh, brigades or divisions under the command that were uh, appointed to more specialized roles? Yeah, there were several of these guys who they did have specialized role. A great example would be Henry Knox, who was the commander of the artillery for Washington. Uh, there was a French engineer named Duportail who commanded the, he was the chief engineer of the army. Uh, Baron von Steuben, the, the Prussian who came over, he was inspector general. Uh, for a while. Uh, another guy, Edward Hand, he took over as inspector general. So there were a number of these guys, which caused the problem because, again, Washington was always short of these generals to run as combat units, but he's got to provide generals for some of these more specialized roles. You actually bring up another uh, fascinating part of your book, which is how you point out that these generals were not necessarily uh, born and raised colonists, that, that, that at the start of the war, you had, or over the course of the war, you had people who came from abroad who uh, were then appointed to these positions. Were these, uh, so how exactly did that work? Uh, who, if they, these people were coming from abroad, who was representing them if, if they didn't come from a particular colony? Yeah, there were, there were a whole bunch of these foreign officers who paid attention to the revolution. And of course, it was a big deal in Europe. And they saw the Revolutionary War as an op both as a professional opportunity, and some of them wanted to go over and fight for republicanism. They believed that they believed in that, and it was something to do. So a bunch of them came over and offered their services to Congress. The problem Congress has is, what do you do with these guys? <laughs> well, some of them brought really legitimate skills that the Americans needed, engineering skills, uh, cavalry commanders, the Americans didn't have a lot of them. Uh, others of them were just adventurers who didn't really have a lot of ability, even though they sometimes talked a good game. The problem Congress has is these guys come over and a lot of them expect to get high rank. They came from, say, the French Army, and they'd been generals there, so they expected to be generals in the American Army. But if you appoint them generals, then you alienate a bunch of American officers who've been fighting for a couple years and want to know why is it that this guy is now ranking me when he just got off the boat from France. And a good example of that, there was a French officer named Ducourdray, who was an artillery officer. 
really impressive resume over in France. So he persuaded the American representative to France in 1776 that he could contribute to the American cause. And the American representative, a guy named Silas Dean, signed him up and on Congress's, in the name of Congress, promised him that he could command the American artillery. So this Tim Cordray guy crosses the Atlantic Ocean, and he travels to Washington's headquarters, and he introduces himself to Washington. He says, I'm your new artillery commander. (laughs) Washington hadn't heard anything about this, and Washington already had a very capable artillery commander at Henry Knox. So he sent this Ducardray guy off to Philadelphia, and he sent and he wrote Congress saying, I, I assume you guys will be able to sort this all out, but I don't want to give up Henry Knox as my artillery commander. And in fact, Congress, when they looked at this, they found themselves in something of a bind because their representative had made this pledge to them. They don't want to do anything to alienate the French whose support they're trying to secure to help them wage the war. But at the same time, they don't want to upset the American officer corps, so they're trying to square the circle, and it's made even more complicated when Henry Knox and a couple of his buddies threatened to resign in a public letter to Congress. And, of course, Congress doesn't like the idea of a bunch of generals bossing them around. So they end up coming up with some some compromise that doesn't satisfy anyone. And what really saves the day is the French officer, Ducadre, he drowned crossing the Chalco River in uh, 1777. And there's a sarcastic, cynical remark by John Adams when he hears that this French officer is drowned. He wrote wrote somebody, this is going to save us a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's, it's not the only case that that caused trouble. There were other officers, foreign officers, who got appointments that just angered a lot of American officers. Hey, what you've done just highlights to me what was one of the most interesting parts of the book, which is that we talk nowadays about you know the founding fathers, and we, we, we sort of talk about these people as the, the people who uh, you know fought for our country. And yet you highlight just you know, a lot of those dynamics that we've already referenced, the, the notion of, 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 of social status, uh, the notion of responsibility, and the notion of having their, uh, you know, the idea of having their, their, their service uh, and their success uh, properly rewarded, uh, about how so much of this is about ego and, and how these people, the, the, nobody, you don't have, they're not always say, we're going to put our ego aside for the greater good. Sometimes they're sitting here, and, and as you just mentioned, they're willing to walk away from the cause if they feel like they're disrespected. It's, it's such an interesting element, don't you think? Yeah, there's this obsession with honor, and honor is one of those terms in the 18th century that's kind of hard to define and it, it's more than just your reputation. In the 18th century, if somebody else did better than you, somehow that could impinge on your own honor. And they're real sensitive to this, especially soldiers. They're really sensitive to this. And they saw honor as, I wouldn't say it's more important than their country, but they would argue that if I don't have my honor, I can't serve my country very well. So since I don't have my honor, I better just quit, because there's no way I can do what I'm supposed to do if I don't have my honor. And that pops uh, the other thing that that struck me as interesting is the, as you say, the role of ego and also the role of politics in that these guys, yeah, they're founding fathers, but at the same time, they're also politicians and making those decisions of who the general should be often got to be very messy. And like any political decision, there's a lot of log rolling and side deals and stuff like that. 
I, that uh, that notion of honor, I, I thought was was interesting because, I mean, we're, we you know, it's as you're pointing out, as you mentioned, it is something you see in in the West during this time, especially among the the elites, and you see it, you know, oftentimes expressed in terms of officers and so forth. But you, it's not something you don't have that existing establishment. So, are these people basically? projecting their honor in terms of their 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 social status in 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 American society or are they basically are they modeling themselves after their idea or their experience with British officers or French officers they're deciding this that if they're going to be equals then they should you know sort of put on the 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 attitudes and 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 present themselves in the way that European officers traditionally do well, that's a really good question I think it's a little bit of both certainly they do have this I'm not sure I want to call it an inferiority complex, but they I think you put it well, they seek to emulate British officers at the beginning of the war, because that's what they know. And uh, when French officers come over, at least at first, they do seem to have, they defer to these French officers to a surprising extent until they learn that the French officers are like anybody else with the same foibles and same problems, and they become a lot towards more cynical about them. But I think it's a little <laughs> bit of both. I think that's a really good point you made too. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a bit about how uh, the roles these generals play. We, you, you talked about how they were in uh, the commanded brigades and, and they, they commanded divisions. Uh, how were they employed by Congress and by Washington to wage the war from the start? Well, they're employed in a couple ways. One thing Congress did at the beginning of the war is they divided the country into these military departments. I think there were three at the start, and each military, you know, there's a northern department, a southern department, a middle states department, and each one required a general to run it. So, for example, Charles Lee was at one point the commander of the southern department, and the idea was that both Washington and Congress would exert some authority over these departments. And then you have the field armies, not just Washington's field army, but there is one in the southern states, one up in the northern states, and there needed to be a commander for those. So, you know, Horatio Gates was the commander of the field army in New York at one point. And then, of course, those field armies require their own division and brigade commanders that were often not always generals. And then you have these specialized roles, as, such as the artillery commander and the inspector general, and those often required a general as well. So those are the three main jobs that you had. You could serve in Washington's army in a combat role. You could serve in one of these military departments, either as an administrator or there's a field army up there in one of those armies or in one of these more specialized roles. And at the beginning of the war, uh, were these uh, different roles fairly well established, or was there a certain amount of bleeding over? And how well did these men interact in their positions? Uh, well, it's common sense to divide the country up into these military departments. The problem comes in how much authority should Washington have over these guys and how much authority should Congress have over these guys. And then another problem that you'll later have is if you have, say, a department commander and then a field army there, how much authority does each have and what are their respective roles going to be? So and let's say up in upstate New York, at one point you had the department commander, Philip Schuyler, and then there's a field army there led by Horatio Gates. What are the lines of authority? What are the responsibilities for, for each one? And those two guys sometimes 
got crossways figuring out what, what the lines of authority were. I was also thinking about the uh, uh, another dynamic, which is the degree to which you know, we have these difficulties of communication, which you know existed back then. I mean, how easy was it for Washington to direct generals who were in different departments geographically distant from him? Well, it is a problem, and as time goes by, Washington doesn't exert as much authority, particularly as he gets men in whom he has confidence running these departments, then he doesn't worry about them as much. And a great example would be Nathaniel Green. When Green took over as a Southern Department commander, Washington didn't interfere with him much. He let Green come up with his own strategy. Uh, he let Green deal with his own administration. He still kept in touch with Green, but he had so much confidence in him, he gave him pretty much an autonomous role. That actually raises an excellent question, uh, a question, sorry, an interesting question that I had in my, uh, as I was reading the book, which is this dynamic of, of Washington's own role in terms of interacting with these commanders, in terms of appointing them. You, you've talked about how Congress was the one that ultimately had the responsibility for selecting the generals and uh, appointing them to their positions, and uh, as you explained as well, removing them. What, to what degree did, did Washington uh, have a formal uh, say in the process, and to what degree did he have an influence, and how often was uh, his opinion respected, and to what degree was it overridden by other concerns? Uh, another good question. Yeah, Washington didn't have a formal role in the selection process, but he did have a lot of informal influence in the process. In other words, if Washington wanted a guy promoted to general and wrote Congress, said, I really recommend that you appoint this guy to be a brigadier general or major general, Congress usually deferred to him. And a good example would be Benjamin Lincoln. He was a Massachusetts a militia general who impressed Washington during the Boston siege. And Washington persuaded Congress to appoint him a major general, jump over the brigadier general rank and go directly to major general because Washington thought so much of him. Same with Alexander McDougall, another guy who Washington wrote a, wrote a letter to Congress urging them to promote him. So if he wanted somebody promoted the general, Usually he could he could get his way. Now, on the other hand, there were some guys who Washington did not like and wrote to Congress urging them not to promote this guy, and Congress didn't always listen to him. And a good example would be um, Thomas Conway, who was a French volunteer who became a brigadier general, and Congress promoted Conway to major general over Washington's objections. Another interesting one is that Washington also recommended against promoting Daniel Morgan to major general because uh, Washington didn't like Morgan's attitude uh, at, at one point. And this is Daniel Morgan, one of the great tacticians of the Revolutionary War, <laughs> the guy who commanded the riflemen, won the battle of uh, won the battle of Cowpens, but Washington and he got crossways at some point. So Washington temporarily quashed his promotion. He'll eventually get promoted to Major General, but Washington was able to delay it. So Washington did play a role. And the other thing that's interesting is Washington had a talent for spotting talent. He he did a surprisingly good job recognizing some of these uh, young new generals and doing what he could to cultivate their careers and help them out. And the, the classic example would be Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel Green was from Rhode Island, 
and he was one of the junior generals appointed early on in the war, and Washington took a shining to him and took him under his wing, and it took a long time for Green to really blossom. Uh, Green was responsible for uh, crushing defeat at Fort Washington at one point, and he screwed up some other times. But Washington just saw something in this Green guy and eventually appointed him Southern Department commander, and he went down there, and in this brilliant campaign, he drove the British out of North and South Carolina and is considered one of the great strategists in American history. But you wouldn't have guessed that in, say, 1776, 1777, where Green did not perform he wasn't terrible, but he wasn't, didn't seem to be anything outstanding about him. And there, there are other guys who Washington saw talent in, like Henry Knox of the artillery. Uh, but on the other hand, it, it, he wasn't infallible. There were some guys that Washington took a shining to who did not turn out to be great generals. They turned out in some cases to be bad generals. And the best example there would be Benjamin Lincoln, who's the guy Washington wrote to Congress and persuaded Congress to appoint him to be a major general. Benjamin Lincoln was eventually sent down south to be the Southern Department commander, and he's the guy who lost Charleston, one of the biggest American defeat of the war when the British captured Charleston, South Carolina, and captured, I think it's 5,000 Continentals, or a big number. And it's just a crushing defeat, in part because Lincoln wasn't, wasn't as good of a general as Washington thought he did Washington's management of the army through these men change over time? Because as you know, when, when he's appointed to the uh, position of commander in chief and he doesn't have, I mean, he has military experience, but he's never been in command of a force this size. In fact, you know, nobody in America has. Did, did he uh, over time have to work out how to make it work? Or did he very quickly establish a, a, a pattern of, of, of dealing with matters through these men that he stuck with throughout the course of the war? Uh, yes and no. Uh, one of the things that struck me as interesting about Washington is how patient and accommodating he was with these guys almost from the start of the war, and that continues throughout. I mean, a lot of these generals were just difficult people to work with. And Washington was always sensitive to their honor, always sensitive to their wants and desires, and gave them furloughs when they asked usually, and put up with their complaining and put up with their carping with each other. Uh, and that continues throughout the entire war. So he got that right from the get-go. Uh, and, and he also, he never scapegoated. And he, when he when he lost a battle, he didn't go through and try to find out who was responsible for the loss and fire the person, because often it was Washington's fault. And if he starts scapegoating, he's going to look awfully hypocritical. So he didn't like to do that, and he refrained from doing that. And in the occasions where Washington ends up bickering with one of his officers, it's usually the other officer's fault. Washington tries to get along with these guys, and if there's a fallen out, not always, but usually it's the other guy's fault. And the best example would be Charles Lee, who uh, Washington and Lee got into a big argument after the Battle of Monmouth over who was responsible for the problems the American army had at the beginning of the battle. And after the battle, Washington was willing to let bygones be bygones, but Lee continued to complain about how he wasn't getting the credit he deserved and blamed Washington for the problems. And Lee's the one who pretty much demanded his own court-martial, and that's what ended his career. And it wasn't Washington who did that. Again, he was willing to just let it all go, but Lee insisted, and that put him into his career. I 
was reading this book and it was very interesting reading you know a lot some of the names uh for are very familiar to people uh who, who uh, with just a, a passing uh knowledge of the american revolution and and some names might be a bit more obscure i was wondering if you might uh maybe take a minute and and and, and identify perhaps uh maybe a commander that over the course of your uh, research and writing of this, you you come to feel maybe was underappreciated or undervalued uh, in terms of his uh, abilities or or contribution to the American Revolution, and who did you come to conclude was 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 overrated? Not not just maybe somebody like Benjamin Lincoln, who Washington overpromoted, perhaps, but but somebody who who maybe retained a, a larger reputation than you, you you feel that you know after having compared all these men together, maybe wasn't warranted. Well, most of the guys who weren't that good were eventually found out. Horatio Gates got all this credit for winning the Battle of Saratoga, but by the end of the war, he'd lost the Battle of Camden, and, and he was exposed for being the mediocre general that he was. As for guys who were underrated, uh, a guy I mentioned earlier, Enoch Poor, uh, he was one of the more underrated generals, but most of the ones get the credit they deserve. I mean, from the get-go, people realize that Benedict Arnold was a fabulous battlefield commander, which which he was. Nathaniel Green, he did get the credit he deserved eventually before the end of the war. Even congressmen recognized what a wonderful general he was. Anthony Wayne, he got the credit he deserved. He was a great combat commander, and people recognized that even before the war was over. Um, Lafayette might be, might be a good case point, though. Lafayette was a young French officer from an incredibly aristocratic family who came over. I think he was 19 when he came over, and he just charmed Congress in Washington, and they made him a major general and gave him one of the most important positions as a division commander, mostly just based on his personality. Uh, He didn't really do all that much, even though everybody thought the world of this guy, although when he did command in Virginia in 1781, he performed not brilliantly, but credibly there. So I, I really can't think of a guy who deserves more praise than history has given him, not amongst the higher-ranking guys. Hmm. You uh, end the book in the 1780s by, uh, in, in, by drawing some conclusions about what they say about, about what these experiences and, and what these events say about the, the, the nature of command. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about those conclusions and also maybe a bit about the, you know, the degree to which these choices and these people came to shape not just the Revolutionary War, the events of the Revolutionary War, but also maybe perhaps, and I know this is a little outside of your book, but the, the beginnings of the American Army itself. Well, when I evaluated them, I looked at, first of all, how were they as a strategist? And there are only a few of them that had much of an opportunity to do strategy. Most of them were doing tactics on the battlefield. And the two premier strategists, it's its no secret, one was Washington, who, for all the mistakes he made on the battlefield, he did learn to be a rather shrewd strategist, and the fact that he could survive year after year <laughs> shows what a good strategist he became. He learned how to avoid straight-up fights with the British Army, because he learned early on when he took on the British Army around New York, they're going to beat him. So he used the geography to his advantage and the terrain to his advantage. He took advantage of the militia and what they had to offer. So Washington really deserves to be considered the premier strategist. The other guy who had the opportunity to apply strategy was Nathaniel Green down in the Carolinas, and he too um, performed brilliantly down there. 
by driving the British out of the Carolinas. There were some other guys who did conduct strategy who didn't do as good of a job, like Horatio Gates, for example. Uh, he commanded on northern New York during the Saratoga campaign and did a good job there, though people give credit to other people for helping him out. And then later in the Carolinas, where he was a disaster, and the same with Benjamin Lincoln. Uh, so the the Congress did appoint some generals who were great strategists, but some generals who weren't. The other thing you can look at is how well these guys fought on the battlefield, their tactics. And here there were some guys that emerged as great tacticians, guys like Anthony Wayne, Benedict Arnold was a great tactician, uh, Daniel Morgan was a great tactician, but there are other guys, and most of them, they're not great tacticians. They're plotting, they're brave guys, but they just didn't show a lot of tactical brilliance. And that includes Washington. Washington was never a great tactician. Of course, he lost more battles than he won. And that's true also of Nathaniel Green. And most of these guys weren't very good tacticians, in part because they didn't have the training, in part because the troops weren't as well trained as, as the British soldiers were. So tactically, the generals left a lot to be desired, and we'll just leave it at that. And then a third way you can rate them is by looking at what they did in more administrative roles. So a guy like Baron von Steuben, who was inspector general and trained the Continental Army, uh, he did a good job in his position. So did Duportail, who was the engineer. So you can evaluate some of them that way. And the ones, the ones that do a good job tend to be the foreigners because they've got those specialized skills, although Henry Knox is artillery commander. He did a good job as well. So you can look at them in those three ways. Uh, and in terms of how they influenced the American army as a whole and in the, in the subsequent, subsequent activities of the American army, um, I, you know, there's, there's the idea that you're going to have a national army and that it's going to uh, be filled with, with – officers, but they don't have, they don't come up immediately with a way to get those officers. So all the way up until West Point is open, you're still just appointing officers who come straight out of the civilian world and show an interest in the military. Uh, certainly Washington does lead, set aside an example of how you should uh, conduct strategy and how you should deal with people and that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it influences that all the way up until the War of 1812. The, the Army uses von Steuben's uh, training manuals all the way up until the War of 1812. Uh, so, so it does set in place a standard for the National Army that's going to last, again, up through the War of 1812. It's not always a successful standard because the army didn't fight terribly well in the war of 1812 but it did cast a mold that's going to be used for a long time i, I was thinking also about some of the, the the people who emerge from the war the like you mentioned you know washington's not the most obvious example but there's also knox and there's there's the dramatic there, there's anthony wayne who you know who you you see in the 1790s into the early 19th century that they they basically you know they're, they're born of this rather chaotic haphazard process is very political means of appointing them but some of them you know they they end up becoming the these very important figures in terms of the establishment of the post-revolutionary national army yeah that, that's a good point yeah, henry knox became secretary of war under washington um but for every one of those guys they're also the ones who just sort of disappear into obscurity and don't play a major role a lot of these guys they felt they'd done their duty during the revolutionary <laughs> war and they just wanted to go home keep in mind a lot of these guys served 
four, five, six years. They're away from their family. They often weren't paid for years at a time, and they thought they'd done their duty, and they're done. And even guys like Knox and Washington, they assume these national roles reluctantly because they, too, had spent a lot of time <laughs> serving the country, and a lot of them were just tired at the end of the war. Yeah, that, that was a, a, something you mentioned in the book that I thought was really interesting, which is the notion of, of how age plays a role and how well they did and how the older ones because it's, as you you observe, I mean, campaigning back then was so physically arduous in terms of the the marching, the you you're on horseback a lot, and and in terms of like who person who you know did well simply from the standpoint of of just simply being young enough and having the stamina for it. Yeah, the original ten brigadier generals that Congress appointed in 1775, um, eight of them were older guys who had a lot of experience, not leadership experience, but a lot of military experience from the Great War for Empire. And the two junior guys were Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan. And the two junior guys are the ones who lasted the longest. They were also two of the more successful ones. And I think you can make an argument that they didn't have as much to unlearn as those more <laughs> senior guys who were taking their cue from how the British fought in the Great War for Empire, which isn't necessarily applicable to how the Americans should fight in the Revolutionary War. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on Marine Corps generals in World War II. And it's the same thing. I want to know why is it that those guys got commanded to lead the divisions in the Corps and the Marine Corps in the Pacific in World War II and what that can tell us about the Marine Corps' history. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Well, I hope it does come out. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 Stephen, uh, Tafe, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you for having me.